Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, by way of review, I wanted to read a verse that, uh, a passage that I haven't brought up yet. If you were here about four and a half years ago, we went through Second Peter, you, we talked about this, but since probably at least half or more were not here, why it would be good to remind ourselves of this. But we've been seeing how Paul's understanding of what takes place, we've been seeing Paul's understanding of what takes place at Christ's second coming, and it seems to be the same as Peter's. And uh, I read then, uh, I just wanted to read a passage in First Peter, or Second Peter chapter 3, where the question is that Peter's addressing is, those who say, where is the promise of his coming? They say, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So because Christ did not come back immediately, there were skeptics who were saying, look, uh, you know, is this really going to happen? But besides all that, what is the point? What's the question he's answering here? When, what's going to take place? When, when is he coming back? And what's going to take place when the next thing that we're looking for, what is the coming of the Lord, right? That's, that's, that's the whole point. So he answers it starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. Now we all heard uh, there's a, a movie out, uh, A Thief in the Night. Take another perspective in all this. Well, the Lord's going to come as a thief in the night. But notice here that this is Peter's understanding of the very next thing, thing that we're waiting for, the Lord's coming. It will be unexpectedly, it will be coming while people are going about their daily routine. The Lord will come back. And then what happens? What he does not say is that then there will be a seven-year tribulation, then there will be a thousand-year millennial reign. When In that day, when the Lord comes back, the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. And of course, so the judgment. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that is, all temporal things, all the things that, that our hearts tell us to live for instead of the Lord. Since knowing these things will be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Is this not exactly Paul's theology that we've been studying in, in 1 Corinthians 15? Since we are going to have resurrected bodies, since we shall be with the Lord someday, we're going to have it, there's going to be a general judgment. Shouldn't that be the way we, that, shouldn't that affect the way we live? In fact, we'll see that in the first couple of verses again that we study uh, this morning. <clears throat> Verse 12. Again, so he kind of repeats this. We are waiting for the, and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire. We're waiting for the coming of the day of the Lord because of which, or it is that day that will bring about the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Interestingly, and I don't have time to develop this more, but one of the <clears throat> tenets, and to me, this is a this is a, a text that, that that premillennialism I don't believe has an answer for. But one of the things that they say is in the Old Testament, 
He looks forward to a day in which righteousness shall fill the earth. Well, I don't have a problem with that, but it seems like Peter is saying that it is the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness shall dwell. So that is at least a, I think, a legitimate interpretation of those passages in the Old Testament that some say must take place physically on earth. Well, well and good. But remember, we will not be dwelling in glory, in eternity, in some kind of spiritual realm floating around in disembodied spirits. We will have physical bodies that will be living on a physical planet. Now, that's a, that says a lot, and, and don't ask me to explain that. I think a lot of that is not given to us to understand, but that's the facts. And there you see one of the places where we, we get that. So, to me, Second uh, Peter chapter 3 is an extremely interesting and important and I think telling passage when it comes to understanding our eschatology, but also I think we see how it coincides with what we've been studying here, especially over the last two weeks in First Corinthians, and Paul's understanding of what's going to take place, what's going on now, and what's going to take place when the Lord comes back, and as he said, we saw last week, he says, and then comes the end. If that's not what Peter is describing there, then I'm confused, I guess would be the way, the way to say it. So, anyway, that's, that's how I, I see these things. Paul has been um, carefully laying out all the practical implications of the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Uh, we got something in the mail this week at the church about some religion I've never heard of. It wasn't given any name. It's out of Colorado which is no big surprise. Uh, it's just, it's a weird, also, it's a mess of Christianity and all sorts of stuff. But I was reading through some of the stuff that they were, in this stuff that they sent, and it's, it made the fact, uh, it mentioned that someday we shall, in our spiritual essence that we will have in eternity, in our, we'll be spiritual, and we will be able to remember what took place back when we had bodies on earth. Well, right there is just one example of, mis- of misinformation of a false doctrine. They don't understand the resurrection. They, they need to quit reading whatever book they were trying to get you to read and start reading the Bible because the Bible is where the answers are. So he has also re- uh, referred briefly to the time in which all this will happen at the return of Christ to gather his redeemed at the general resurrection and judgment. Today, then, we will look a little bit more closely at what our resurrected bodies will look like. And the next week, we will continue that a little bit, but more in light with how we got there in Adam and the connection between our fallen Adam and our uh, salvation in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So uh, the the whole chapter from from beginning to end is just packed full of good stuff. But we come to verse 33, where he quotes uh, somebody... I'm not sure that we know exactly, but it's in parentheses or in italics, and it probably is a quote. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And we've seen that the hope of the resurrection gives meaning to our faith. And as we read it with Peter and with Paul, it is an incentive then for sanctification and endurance because we know that death is not the end. And this verse then, at first, is a call to get away from those who deny a resurrection. This is not, although it's certainly just as a general principle, many a mother, no doubt, has borne their child, perhaps quoted this verse, bad company, 
uh, introduces bad morals, right? It, it ruins good morals. It's a, it's a truism, right? I mean, if it's if it's anything, it's a truism. But in its context, what Paul is saying here is that those who are trying to get you to believe there is no resurrection, you need to get away from them because it destroys any reason for morality. It destroys any way of holy living, as he's already been explaining for several verses now. <clears throat> and so that's the real context. It, uh, it's not just that bad manners. It's not talking about how... how Bad company might give you bad manners or, you know, youthful hijinks and all that. It's true, but, but that's not Paul's point here as such. Those who say that death ends at all destroy any reason to believe. He's kind of finishing up this whole section that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. And in so doing, they destroy lives and societies. We, we see our, our, our culture crumbling because uh, we, we have lost all sense of the coming judgment, all sense of our uh, uh, responsibility before God. And so verse 34 just continues this idea. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. You know, there, there is right and wrong. There's black and white. It just, you know, and Paul just reminds us, there are some things that are true. Not everything's gray. <clears throat> and uh, we, we don't, don't be afraid to stand on conviction. Don't be afraid to say, this is wrong. It's not because I think it's wrong, because the Bible says it's wrong. This is right, because God has said it is right. And, and that's the end of this discussion, right? And Paul says, it is right. Do not go on sinning. For some who have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. <clears throat> Even if subconsciously you have allowed yourself to get up in the morning without a firm consciousness of God and the truth of his word, and that in turn has caused you to live properly and to do what is right, um, and, and if you have failed to do that, and if you as a Christian, at times as we grow cold, or you know, it, we, 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 we lose the consciousness, the fact that Christ is coming back, the fact that that we are here for a purpose and we start to just kind of get in, caught up in life and life's problems and making a living and we sometimes forget. Paul says, stop, wake up. Because if, if you, if you're beginning to buy in this idea that, that, um, you're not going to answer to the Lord, that He's not watching you, that He doesn't expect something, you're, it's going to end well or bad for you. There are certainly historical ex- examples of areas, of uh, places and times where it has appeared that everybody was going to die in some, in some sense. Normal life, in that case, normal life was abandoned and all sorts of licentious acts were committed because people felt, well, tomorrow we're dead. This is the end. No, that's all Paul's whole point. <clears throat> it doesn't matter if we're, uh, you know, the nuclear, uh, uh, bombs are coming at us, and we know it's just a matter of time before we die. Life does not end, and we still have a responsibility to the Lord because we're going to stand before Him. And so a Christian would live basically no different his last day of life, if he knew it was his last day of life, as he would before. If anything, he would be more holy, more serious, because he realizes the, the seriousness of the situation, right? <clears throat> That's what Paul is saying here. 
And so I've said this before, but if my teaching doesn't lead us to serve Christ with more and more fervor, to love him more, and to take uh, living for him more seriously, then either I've not been preaching truth or it's been falling on deaf ears, something's wrong because biblical doctrine is, is, as we talked about in Sunday school a little bit, is there to, there, it must be reacted to properly. It's there to transform. It's not just to inform. It must first inform so that we might be transformed. Right? And we can't forget that. <clears throat> so he says, it's a shame if we see this going on in our lives. And so that brings us to verse 35 where he kind of changes uh, kind of really bringing a lot of the subject to its full circle as he continues to talk about it. First thing to notice here is that this is not merely a question about our resurrected bodies that someone is asking just because they're curious. Notice what he says here. But someone will ask, how, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, if you came up to me after service and we're talking and say I preach on totally, something totally different, and he came up to me and said, Pastor, uh, how, how are we going to be raised? What's that all about? How, how can the Lord do that? Well, I would, it's a legitimate question, and I would try to answer that as best I could. But Paul says, you fool. You foolish person. So why? Well, because it's not being asked with that spirit. It's, it's skeptics. And, and Paul, if you've seen anything, Paul doesn't have a lot of time for skeptics. At least not a lot of patience, right? So what they're doing is, uh, how are the dead raised? That's impossible. That can't happen. Well, what kind of body are they going to have? And, and all that kind of stuff. It's just trying to discredit God's word. And, and that's the thing that we want to understand here. So, um, they don't believe. And they're trying to, and it's probably because they have Gnostic, you know, the, the, that Gnostic background that, that matter is evil. So they're saying, look, there's no way that can happen because if they have a physical body, then that's a, that's, that's digression. That's not progression and all this. And so it's just to reject the Bible because you don't understand it. You can't explain it. <clears throat> and of course this happens all the time. It happens a lot with the sovereignty of God. People say, People see responsibility, they see the sovereignty of God, and well, no, one, one, it's got to be one or the other. I don't, I don't get it. How can God send people to hell if they're lost in their sins and totally depraved? And, and, you know, I don't get it. So I'm just gonna, I, I'm gonna come up with my own way to explain this. Oh, look at, we, we can't understand all these things, but what we must do is believe what the Bible does say and leave the rest to God. And, and that's what they're doing here. They're, they have bought into something, and since the Bible, they, they couldn't make any sense out of it, they're, they're, I'm going to go with this and not the Bible. It's kind of what's going on here. We notice here, Paul in uh, Acts 26, 6 says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain, as they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I have accused by the Jews. In other words, the Jews are praying that Messiah would come and set up his kingdom. And Paul says, I'm trying to tell everybody it's happened. And the Jews keep, uh, you know, they're killing me because of that. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Of course, part of it is that Jesus was raised from the dead. 
And if anybody should be able to believe that, it should be the Jews who have an Old Testament full of that kind of thing happening. And an an understanding that God has created life to begin with, right? It shouldn't be incredible. And and that's kind of, in one sense, that's that's the problem with the skeptic here in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Why? Just because you don't understand how this is going to happen. Again, the Bible's not here to teach us how. The Bible's there to teach us why. What's going on? Why is it happening? The hows we might or might not always understand. <clears throat> so he makes the point that if one believes the Bible and understands its teaching, even from the Old Testament, none of this should seem impossible. If God could create our bodies, he surely can recreate them. And so the problem here is an objection because it ignores really the very person of God. It, it's, it's, it's questioning God's ability to do any of this. And so in the next few verses, in 36 through 38, Paul answers three questions because truth isn't rattled by skeptics and doubt and we should never be afraid to proclaim the truth. You know, someone out there might be able to uh, say something that you can't answer when it comes to creation and evolution and all that. But that's the great thing about the Bible is we know this is true. And even if we can't understand, maybe we don't have an answer readily available for them, we just simply can say, this is what the Bible says. And we don't have to be rattled by that. because Just because there's someone out there has come up with something that you haven't learned the answer to, right? And that's okay, because we, we trust God, not the wisdom of man. <clears throat> so the first thing he does is show that God has designed basic life to illustrate what's going to happen someday to believers. This is one reason why we know that the universe is not random and did not just come together in some mystical way that, that nobody can understand, some force that we don't know. It was put together in by an intelligent designer because even the way uh, we plant seed in the, in the spring and it produces crops was was done in a way to illustrate what we look forward to, our eventual resurrection. When we die and we are planted in the ground, we uh, we find out that all that was done by design. So we know that someday we'll be raised, but just like that seed, it's just a little teeny seed, kind of ugly looking, doesn't really make it you know, not very impressive. <clears throat> when when the Lord gets done with it, it, it produces this big, a beautiful plant. Something much greater. That's kind of Paul's point here in these verses. <clears throat> the Bible says that it is a fool who says in his heart there is no God. And so to deny what the Bible clearly teaches is the height of foolishness, especially when God gives us these illustrations in nature. And Jesus uses illustrations in nature often. To teach some spiritual lessons. And again, I don't think that's random. I think that God designed it that way when he created it. And so, <clears throat> death and physical decay are not an insurmountable barrier to the resurrection of life, but rather, in one sense, the means to it. In other words, would we suppose that death and decay are some kind of insurmountable problem for God, rendering him incapable of resurrecting our bodies, <clears throat> From the natural processes of decay, 
when he's the one who, of course, created all this to begin with. It wouldn't make any sense. And so we need only, Paul says, to look at the realm of nature to see the folly of that kind of logic. If we reason that death and decay renders the resurrection impossible, then he says, just trace the steps of the farmer in the spring and follow what goes on there into the harvest, and you'll see that it doesn't quite work that way. Um, in fact, Jesus does the very same thing in John 12 when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, Paul probably has this verse in mind and is expanding on it because almost all the epistles are just expansions of Jesus' words teachings anyway. So, Jesus here is referring, of course, to his death in chapter 12. And what he's saying is that instead of thinking that his death would end things, his death will be the means to a new life. So just as that seed, when it dies, it, it produces much. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There's really two applications here. Not only that Jesus, has, as you've already seen, is the firstborn of many brethren, so his death and resurrection is the first fruits of ours. Ours is, uh, many will follow later. But even spiritually, he, he's saying, and again, it just shows how wise God is to, to bring all of this together like this. How do we produce fruit as a Christian? Well, not by going around and strutting our stuff, but by dying. By dying in Christ. By uh, saying no to self and finding new life in Christ and letting him live through us in John 15. We produce fruit in death. We produce fruit. Uh, that's how God produced fruits in us. <clears throat> and so, um, just as his death produced a new life in the church, so by dying or giving up our life and living for Christ, we will produce fruit. And, and what, of course, the point in both these passages is that in dying, something much greater will come. Uh, if you plant a kernel of corn, many more will be produced. If, if, if a corn stalk just produced one more kernel, well, we'd be in a lot of trouble. You might get the continuation of the species, but you would not get a food for us, right? You need a lot. So one kernel produces not just a great plant, but many kernels, right? That's the point. It produces something much different. There's a transformation. It's still corn, but it's corn on steroids. If I kind of, and it, we know it's not, hopefully, but it, it's it's much more than corn. And that the point the point here, because remember, this is about our glorified bodies and what we will be. We'll still be us. We'll still have arms. We'll still be human. We'll still be identified by who we are, but. We'll be much in a much greater situation physically and spiritually than we were before. That's a very important point to make. There, this is there's a direct connection between the seed that is buried and the plant, which results from the resurrection of that seed. So we, he goes on here to say that wheat seeds produce wheat plants, rye seed produces rye plants, and so forth. But the process of dying and being resurrected. As a plant, he says in verse 37, is naked or bare, just plain by itself. That seed becomes something much more beautiful. 
much more, uh, not maybe beautiful in the sense of, of, of pretty to look at, but much more beneficial, much greater. <clears throat> There's nothing particularly beautiful about a bag of, you know, corn seed or soybean seed, if you've ever seen any of that stuff. But you see a, a whole field that's ripened to harvest. And, and again, not just that it might look pretty, although it is often, but it's what it can do. It can feed many people, right? It, it can get us through the winter, as it were. So it's just much greater. The potential is there, much greater. So when we die, the form of body, this form of body will rot away, but someday it'll become, in, it'll come back in a much greater form. The same thing, but greater. So there's a connection. Uh, not, it doesn't become something different. It just becomes something better, with more potential. It doesn't cease to be. Something new takes its place. And so he goes on to point out the difference, starting in verse 37. He says it will be radically different, yet it will be human. And we need to understand that, because I think sometimes we, if you've seen movies and read books or whatever, you, people's visions of heaven sometimes is just uh, these alien life forms. We, we become these spiritual essences that are completely alien to what we are now. And and it's just not the case. I mean, in the inter- intermediate state, what heaven looks like, you know, who knows. But, you know, Paul wasn't even allowed to talk about that. But we're talking about what's going to be in the resurrected state, at the resurrection of the new heavens and the new earth. So we're not going to be some new alien form, but create, recreated so that we, to always, to always be what we always were, human, just without the limitations that sin has brought, even beyond what Adam was, because while Adam was sinless, and Adam was going to live forever had he not sinned, Adam was still, you know, he had to work, uh, just in some sense to survive. He had to, he, he, he had, uh, he had limitations in the physical body that we won't even have in eternity. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but, so in verses 39 through 40, Goes on to say, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish, and so on. But again, the, the, the reason why some of this is important is um, because there's so much misinformation out there. The seed changes radically, but it continues to be the same form. And so you've got human form, human body, and that's separate from all other kind of bodies. And so the, the eternal state will not be some sort of sci-fi existence, but it just reminds us that God is moving all things to his desired end, and that we will be there, and we will not be radically different than we are now. We'll still be human. We'll be like Christ in his glorified bodies. We won't fundamentally change. And it's good for us to understand that. So he's kind of connecting Genesis 1, to eternity. God created man, gave him dominion over the earth, and, and in Christ we will end that way. We will be on the new earth, and we will have dominion over that earth, but we won't be able to lose it, which was one of the weaknesses of Adam. And I think, in a sense, we'll be able to have dominion over the entire creation, the new heavens, whatever they might be, and whether it will be in the same form now or not. So what we're learning here too then in verses 39 through 40 is that we will not be dissolved back into eternal nothingness. 
So again, some of the important, this is important to understand so that we might guard against the air of false religion. There, there is not an eternal nothingness out there. We will not become one with everything because that which is animal is not human. As Paul says right there very plainly, that which is human is not rock, but that which is rock is not light. Nature is different from humanity. There's not an eternal oneness out there. While all material things created are of the same substance, you got molecules, you got atoms, you know, God used the same building block to create everything. Um, yet we are also souls and completely different life forms in that sense. So what I say, well, you begin to sound a little like a sci-fi lecture. Well, not really. My point is that that's not the case. That, that you can't play with the, what the, the universe that God has created. Most of what passes for science fiction is a result of ignoring the boundaries God has made. Much of what is going on in our culture is really just science fiction because it assumes an alternate reality to the reality that God has made. God has made humans human. All other animals are animals. You can't cross-breed them. You can't evolve into something else. You can't, with enough time, a human can't become an animal or an animal who can't become a human. God has made two sexes, and you can't change that. You can you can mutilate bodies, but you can't change what God has made. And so this chapter is important for that reason, of nothing else. And I think Paul is connecting us now with us then, and so these verses at once refute much of the false religions of the world and show why all religions are not the same. I wanted to read just a, a couple of paragraphs from John MacArthur on this subject that I thought was good. We've picked on him a couple of times here lately, but he's got a lot of good things to say here, so let me just read this. He says, I have read that there are some 600 octodecillion, and I don't even know whatever that means, you know, however many numbers that is, different combinations of amino acids. An octodecillion is 10 to the 108th power. So you've already gone way beyond my ability to comprehend, right? Or one followed by 108 zeros. Amino acids are the building blocks of all life. Not only does some type of plant and animal life have a distinct pattern of amino acid, does, not only does each type of plant and animal life have a distinct pattern of amino acids, but each individual plant, animal, and human being has its own unique grouping of them. So, no two flowers, snowflakes, seeds, blades of grass, or human beings, even identical twins, are exactly alike. Yet each is completely identified with its own species or kind. And that's simply what Paul is saying here. He's just not doing it scientifically because that's not important. Those two facts make one of the strongest scientific evidences against evolution. No matter what we may eat, no matter how specialized or unbalanced our diet may be, and no matter what our environment may be, we will never change into another life form. We may become healthier or more sickly, heavier or lighter, but we will never be anything but a human being and never any human being but the one that we are. The biological codes are binding and unique 
There is no repeatable or demonstrable scientific proof that one form of life has changed or could change into another. And so science proves, as it always does, what the Bible teaches. And then down in, let's just kind of read through this, starting in verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The, the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is another. There is only, there's the glory of the sun and the glory of the moon, the glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. And at that time, you know, people were looking up into the sky with the naked eye and they would see different brightnesses of stars. And, and, but he's not even, it, it goes beyond that. You know, you find up, in fact, uh, a man called Donald uh, P.T., I guess was his name, and, and explaining how stars differ from other stars, not just in size and brightness. Like flowers, the stars have their own colors. If your first upward glance at all, it all gleams white as frost crystals, but single out this one and that for observation, you will find a subtle spectrum in the stars. The quality of their lights is determined by their temperatures. In the December sky, you will see um, Aldebaran, Aldebaran, I guess, is, that's a star, as a pale rose, Regal as bluish white, and Beto, something, goose, orange, or topaz yellow. So in other words, by their size and heat that they produce, it produces a different color of the spectrum. Slight perhaps, some, sometimes uh, more slight than we can see with our eyes, but they're all different. It just ways that we can't even sometimes appreciate. So that which awaits us will be more glorious than we can imagine. He goes on to describe this just a little here. This God of infinite variety has the power to make each star, animal, bug, snowflake, and even the each glorified saint to be different. So it will be, um, the reason is it will be to display his glory. In other words, the fact that God cannot just make humans, but that he can make every human different. He doesn't just make a bush, or a tree, or a blade of grass, but that every one is a little different from the other to just, just display his glory. Now again, well, what, what does this mean? Well, for one thing, it means that in glory, we will not be a whole big mass of lookalikes like start, uh, stormtroopers on uh, Star Wars. We're going to all be who we are, different. Because we all have our unique way to demonstrate the glory of God in our situation. So glory will always be more than it is now, never less. Again, we think this is, we can't comprehend worlds and the universe greater than they are now, but they, they will be greater. It will be true variety, and there will be no sameness except in our love and adoration of the Lord. We'll all be the same in that, but there will be no sameness in glory, and I can't even hardly comprehend that. And so in verses 42 to 44, he gives us um, four different of ways in which contrasts to, to see what's going on here. Uh, our glorified bodies will, will, first of all, he says, be more durable down here in verse 42. 
But B, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Guys, talking about our book bodies. When we die, of course, we're perishable now, but we'll be raised imperishable or more durable. They will no longer be subject to disease and death and the weaknesses that we have now. The consequences of the fall in these bodies uh, will uh, be eradicated. Our new bodies will never perish. They'll never fall, fall away. Of course, we saw that in First Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. Now, if we had perishable bodies, what would be the point of having an imperishable reward? Right? Who cares if it lasts forever if we're not going to last forever? But, of course, we are going to last forever. Um... Verse 43, we see the next contrast, and that's in value or potential. These bodies struggle to serve the Lord well, and certainly we we can't do it perfectly. Uh, We know that our brains aren't used uh, to their full capacity. Uh, Some brains aren't used much at all. Others, a little more, you know. But but we know there's great potential that that evidently was lost is probably ebbing away. no doubt our brain power collectively today is much less than it was before the flood. But someday, whatever our full potential is going to be, we'll have it. Then next, we see this in weakness and power. Now we are limited to gravity, limited in our strength, and our time, limited to whether we have air or not, so forth. But as we saw with Christ who appeared in different places, not having to travel by foot, to go through uh, locked doors. We will have no limitations. We will be wherever we want to be, wherever we need to be. We will be there. We uh, we, we can be there instantaneously, much like the angels. We're not going to be bound by the limitations that we are now. We want to travel through water. We can travel through water without a submarine. I don't know if we'll ever do that, but we can. Right, which, again, if, if the oceans are full of what they are now, what, 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 it would be great to be able to just dive in and just see it firsthand. You know? I've always, as a hunter, I've kind of always fantasized if I could just float through the air invisibly and watch the deer and the turkeys in their natural habitat and not scare them away. But, you know, that's the whole problem. We keep scaring them away. But finally... The final contrast is it says the natural realm versus the spiritual realm. Uh, as we keep reading here in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is so raised in power. And then here, what it is sown in, what is sown in a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So, you know, man has always known that there is more than what we can see. You see that with, you know, seances. And and people just instinctively, and of course a lot of it is just because, you know, no doubt from influence of the Bible, different things. But spiritism has always been among us in, in fallen man. We know there's more out there, but we can't sense it. We can't experience it. But one day, 
we'll be able to experience both the physical world and the spiritual. And I and I dare say, without I don't think I'm speculating here, but maybe I am, that it, they will all be joined into one. Now, there won't be a physical and a spiritual. It'll just be one thing that will be all spiritual, physical together. You know, and it, 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 I would imagine there won't be any unseen realm. There'll just be that one realm. It's, that's how I would imagine it, but we'll, we'll see, I guess. Jesus lived another 40 days on earth after his resurrection, and we see that he would appear and disappear. He would be in one realm and then the other, but I look forward to that day when that won't be the case. And, of course, he, he tells us that the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry or give it in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And he, there's, he says a lot there, but we, we, we know that we won't need marriage anymore. That kind of relationship will have perfect relationships. But, he, but he's, he said, you see, we're going to be living in a different realm. <clears throat> and we're going to be, he says, equal to the angels, which I don't think he means that we're inferior to the angels now. And someday we'll be equal to them. I think we're always in a higher plane than angels in a sense. But the point there is that we'll live as they do. They, they, they live in all of it. They, they don't, they're cognizant of the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And I think that's kind of what he's saying there. So to me, one reason there is science and even science fiction is because of anything, it's obvious that there is much more potential in man and creation than we are actually experiencing. You know, there just has to be more. And the problem is not that man just needs to evolve to his full potential, because sin's holding us back. Sin and, and the sinful world, and someday all that's going to be removed, and, we're, and, and nothing's going to hold us back to being able to be whatever we were created to be. So it's just an amazing chapter when you get to understand what he's really saying here. And one way all this is important now is that it reminds us that the Bible and God are not just given to us to cope with some screaming kids on a bad day. Now, can it do that? Well, hopefully. It happens, right? It's not here to be our daily devotional. It's a book that explains everything. These truths will sustain us, not just on the day of inconveniences, but in the day of death and tragedy. I stand upon the word of God, not because I know why everything happens, but because I know, excuse me, not because I don't understand what's going on and can explain it all, but but God has told me why all this is happening. And I know the one who's in control of all these things. So these truths remind me when everything is falling apart, I can put all this together because I know where it's all leading to. And the God is in full control. And of course that's what he, going back to verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. God is reigning now, subduing all things uh, for the uh, good of the elect as he brings all the elect into salvation, into this kingdom that he's going to hand over to the Father as we talked about last week. And so I end here where we say this passage reminds us that we are to live for eternity and not just for the moment. And, and everything that Paul has said is why.
this book explains why. Why to everything. And next week we'll try to go a little bit further into uh, these things uh, before we get to the end of the chapter. So any questions or questions?